Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Christian life gets brighter and brighter and brighter, and we are nearer to salvation now than when we first believed. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us even more light on our path today by the unfolding of your word. Please help us, Lord, to see your scriptures clearly and accurately. Help us to remember it and apply it. And above all, Lord, help us to see your son, Jesus, in a more excellent way today. Give us ears to pay attention to him and what he said and how he lived. And Father, help our hearts to remember your son is living now in this moment, and he still speaks today. So please be with our hearts. I pray for help in preaching, and I pray for help for those ears listening that that hearts would be transformed, mine and those hearing you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. What does someone have to do to become your enemy? What does someone have to do to become your enemy? On November 17, 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon titled, Loving Your Enemies at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And in his opening remarks, he said on Matthew 5.44, he said, quote, I try to make it something of a custom or tradition to preach from this passage of Scripture at least once a year, adding new insights that I develop along the way, close quote. He could not know that along the way, a few years later in 1968, his enemies would assassinate him. Does it matter whether we love our enemies or not? Does it really accomplish anything? Have you lived long enough to have enemies? And I'm not talking merely thinking enemies equal people trying to kill me, which those are enemies if they're trying to kill you. But enemies, those who set themselves against you for things like what you look like or mainly how the scripture talks, enemies based on the things you believe, your convictions. Do you remember that the New Testament tells us all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. So if you can't think of enemies that you've had in your past, maybe you haven't lived long enough. Or maybe you have enemies, but you avoid them so often, you you find a way to just not really ever be around your enemies. The moment an an enemy is identified, you, you go the other way. Some of you listening right now can think of enemies in your home, your parents, maybe siblings. I'm talking enemies who oppose you, who want to defeat you, put you in your place, put you down, keep you down. Others of you can think right now of enemies in your workplace or your neighborhood. But still others of you can't really think of many enemies right now. You might not know that you have many. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus knows and expects that we will have enemies in this life. 
And therefore, we need to be prepared. Our hearts need to be ready for what to do when our enemies come near. And I'm not trying to scare you this morning, but I am trying to say it's scary to think that in the snap of a finger, you can have enemies right up in your midst in your life that you didn't ever know before existed. In our own arrogance, we we think we know who our enemies are from a distance, and we forget that even those nearest to us could become our enemies if they set themselves against the Lord. Do you know who your enemies are? I pray that you do. If you don't, I pray that this passage causes you to get your heart ready because enemies are going to come in your life. And if you're a saint who loves the Lord, maybe a seasoned saint, you've, you've had many decades of following the Lord, I pray that hearing this sermon today about enemies, you would do your best to teach the younger believers in this congregation. Teach them what it has been like to go through life with enemies along the way and what the Lord has been teaching you. There's so much at stake when we, when we talk about enemies and how to deal with them. Let's see what Jesus has to tell us about enemies. I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. If you don't have a Bible, this is found on page 811 on the Bibles underneath the seats nearby. If you don't have a Bible, turn to page 811. Let's look at a few verses this morning about enemies and fortify our hearts. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. I pray this morning we would come to understand the holy calling that Jesus is holding out for us, a holy calling of supernatural love for those who are hardest to love. Jesus expects that we will have enemies. But he doesn't expect that we should wonder what to do about the enemies that will come into our life. This is why he's teaching us. The main idea of this passage is is very simple. It's that having love for your enemies aligns you with the character of God and refusing to have love for your enemies makes you just like your enemies. 
Do you see how profound that is? If you have love for your enemies, you are aligning yourself with the very character of God himself. And if you don't display and have love for your enemies, you become just like your enemies. There's no middle ground. There's nowhere to stand in between. Those are the only two options, and those are the only two options our passage gives us. In fact, we'll see that as we walk through this passage when we think about natural love that even non-believers have. The type of love that you have in your heart even before you become a Christian, the, the love you have for those you like and the hate for those that you don't like, your enemies. We're going to see that in the passage. In fact, natural love is our first point. This is found in verse 43, natural love. Second, we're going to see supernatural love in this passage, beginning in verse 44. That's going to be the turn where Jesus says, but wait, 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 but, but I say to you, and then Jesus is going to lay out a way to love that is actually, we're going to find out, supernatural So natural love is in verse 43. Supernatural love is in verses 44 to 47. And then we're going to explore for just a little bit why this passage in verse 48 ends with perfection. And that's going to be our third point, moral perfection. So we have natural love first, second, supernatural love, and then third, moral perfection. Let's get into this passage. To get into this passage, I think the first thing we need to do is just fix in our minds what it looks like when someone is an enemy and how they're normally treated. And to do that, I want you to think with me about a professional baseball game. Most of you have seen professional baseball on TV. Maybe you've been to a game. It doesn't have to be the pros. It could be college, high school, little league although what I'm about to describe doesn't happen in Little League very often. But think about a baseball game. One team, let's just say the home team, is playing against the other team. But let's up the stakes a little bit. Let's say it's their rivals. And they're playing a baseball game. The game's going on. The home team knows exactly who their quote-unquote enemy is, their rival is. Who is it? It's the other team. But there's someone else on the field that can suddenly become their enemy. Do you know who that is? I heard umpire, referee. That's right. When can the referee or the umpire in any sporting event suddenly become the enemy of of one of the teams? When does that happen? It's when they do something that seems so blatantly obvious of how they should have called the game, they do something that seems to favor the other team. One team always likes the referee's call. The other team always hates it. Rarely do you find it when both teams hate the referee's call. Why is that? Because when two are going head to head, there's not a lot of middle ground Decisions and actions and things going on around those two are instantly perceived as either you're a threat to me and my team or you're with me and my team. Have you ever seen 
someone storm out of the dugout and not just yell at another player, but stomp on the ground and take their hat off and yell in someone's face. Who is that other person? It's the referee. And why are we thinking about this? Because think about what happened just a few moments or hours before that shouting match with the referee. That referee wasn't their enemy yet. This is to illustrate the fact that you may know who your enemies are or expected enemies are, a.k.a. the other team. But there are moments in life where those who you thought would be either neutral or actually there to help you suddenly become your enemy. And natural love is what is there in our hearts, meaning we only have love for others in a natural sense when they are doing things we like. The moment they're not, because we only have natural love in our hearts, the other half of our heart, that half of hatred, comes out. The fangs come out. I saw this often growing up in all kinds of different sporting event moments. That kind of natural love where we feel like it is, it's instinctual and okay and even acceptable to just hate someone that opposes us but love someone that likes us is, is the natural instinct that Jesus is trying to highlight and explode and tell his followers it's, it's not supposed to be that way. And he does that by saying in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What Jesus is saying here is, is very difficult because when the Jews heard love your neighbor, hate your enemy, when, when first century Jews heard the word enemy, do you know who they thought of? They thought of tax collectors, the Roman government, Roman soldiers, Gentiles. The Romans were oppressing the Jews. They had their boot pressed down upon them. They were occupying the land. They oppressed them. And then the tax collectors were in league with the Romans. They would be traitors to their own people. It was hard to trust them. And then the Gentiles in general who seemed to have no regard for God and his laws. All these folks were in the category of enemies to the common mind of a first century Jew. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, they would have instantly heard that, if that's all Jesus said, and thought, yeah, that's pretty true for how we live. They would have even thought that's what God wants from us. Because they would have thought about Leviticus 19 when God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And at the day, at the time, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the scholars of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught that love for your neighbor set right alongside that is hatred for your enemy. They they go together. Many false teachers, and I say false teachers because they thought they knew the scriptures, but they were teaching contrary to it, use Leviticus 19 to take a narrow view of one's neighbor. In Leviticus 19, it says, don't take 
vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And because the word your own people is mentioned in that chapter and near those verses, the natural love in a Jewish heart was, I'm only going to love fellow Jews. Jesus knows that. He knows that they were taught, it's okay to hate your enemies. The idea of hatred for enemies was acceptable. In fact, do you remember in the Gospels how someone came up to Jesus and they said, trying to justify themselves, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You remember that? And Jesus then told the parable of the great Samaritan. Jesus is trying to help them here see that having a narrow view of neighbor, if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to have category of neighbor and enemy, I'm going to call you to love both of them if that's the kind of groups you're going to play. We know this to be true as Christians that our neighbor is, is, is anyone on the planet. It's not just a narrow group. But Jesus knows they are so entrenched in their thinking and Jesus knows there really are people who will set themselves against you in your life that they will be fixed in your mind as category of enemy. He leverages that category you have and he teaches us here to love your enemy. It's radical. What I hope to show you from this passage is something that, that has really been grinding on me lately. It's been grinding on me because life is hard enough as it is. And I'm thinking, Lord, why, why are you teaching us about enemies? Isn't the best strategy just avoid enemies? That's what I do. Maybe that's your default pattern. If anybody rises up as your enemy in life, whether they're family, coworker, neighborhood, whatever, the strategy I often try to employ is I just try to avoid them. But what, what the Lord's been grinding on my heart this week is what I want to share with you. Uh, I don't think it's personal just for me. I think it's what the passage is aiming at. This passage is showing us what enemy love looks like, why it's important, how to do it. It's actually embedded in this passage, how to love your enemies. And there's actually embedded within this passage ways to rid ourselves of excuses. So if you're like me and there's so many times where you don't want to walk by the Spirit, but you just want to lean back into the natural patterns of love you had before you became a Christian, which is I'm only going to love and treat people who, who I like, who treat me well. The moment somebody becomes my enemy and they set themselves against me, I'm, I'm not going to love them. I don't have time for them. I'm not going to be around them in any way. Those temptations I have, I know you have the same ones. So let's, let's look closely at verses 44 to 47 because Jesus is going to give us what enemy love looks like and why it's so important and how to do it. This is fascinating in this passage. It's fascinating. So let's begin. Let's look at verses 44 through 47. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that even possible? Is it really possible to love your enemies? Seriously. Do you remember when Stephen was being martyred in the book of Acts? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do in that spirit, but all I can say is forgive them, Lord, as he's being stoned to death. Do you remember how the apostle Paul would pray for the Jews who persecuted him because he was now a believer? He prayed for the Jews in, in the book of Romans. He prays for their salvation. He doesn't 
hate them. The Apostle Paul would even tell Timothy a clear warning about an enemy that strongly opposed his message, Alexander the coppersmith. Do you remember that? 2 Timothy 4.14. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So that foe, that nemesis, that challenger, that rival, the adversary, the betrayer, whoever it is in your life, do you think it's really possible to love them? What I'm not saying here is, is warm fellowship with them in the sense that they, they're your best friend and you tell them all your secrets. You have the warmest, most wonderful, sweet experiences with your, with your enemies. I'm not, I'm not saying that. The passage is not saying that. The passage is saying, will you love your enemy? Let's try to unpack what that means. This problem that the Jews would love their neighbor, narrowly defined, and hate their enemy, as Jesus is trying to show them, here's how I want you to live. I want you to align with my character. He shows them a divine example. A divine example. We're going to see that in verse 45. That's where we're going to camp out for a little bit because there's so many good principles in verse 45 for ways that you can love your enemies. But before we look at that, I want to show you something from verse 45 on the front half of the verse that tells us why loving our enemies is so important. If loving your enemies feels like just a bad investment, a waste of your time, look at verse 45, the first half of it. What does it say there? It says, first half, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Wow. If you want to have family resemblance, you have to love your enemies. As Christians, we do this by default, don't we? We love to love those who we like to love. There is a a sense in which supernatural love comes into our heart when we know the gospel and we begin to see other passages in scripture like by all this they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another and we love to keep that love in just the boundaries of other Christians which at times is very supernatural because there are people you meet you seem to have nothing in common with and yet you love them. There's gospel fellowship you can have with them But Jesus here is talking about a category of folks who are not just hard to love and they're a Christian. He's talking about they're hard to love and they're an enemy. They are trying to oppose you. They've set themselves against you. How do we have that kind of love? Some of those hearing Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they would have already been so caught off guard and thought, okay, this guy's not going to take up a sword against the Romans. I thought that's what, what this great teacher, Jesus, was, was going to do. I think he's the Messiah, but wait, he just said, love your enemies? Jesus here is saying something very radical. He's actually saying, though, what the scriptures have already said in Proverbs 25. Verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, 
give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You will heap burning coals on his head. The Lord will reward you. And then Proverbs 24 says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. I I can't wait to tell you these principles of how to love your enemies. I, I really want to get there. We're just two or three minutes from getting there, but we have to stop and just ask and think to ourselves, do you think it is really possible to love your enemies? Put your eyes back on, on verse 44, and I want you to do something here. I don't want you to take out a pen and, and write this in your Bible, but I want you to imagine you could cross out the word enemies and cross out the word those who persecute you, and I, I wish for a moment you would just go ahead and put the name of that person, that girl, that guy, that person who maybe from your past or your present, they are your enemy. Jesus is saying in verse 44, I say to you, love fill in the blank with their name. Love that person. Pray for that person. This means Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. She would pray for who? Who was the the enemy for her in the first chapter, 1 Samuel? Her rival, Penaniah, who tormented her, who taunted her, who poked at her constantly. This is a little bit different than the passage we looked at last week about not retaliating when somebody insults you and it's kind of maybe like a one-time thing. This passage, Jesus is moving into some greater depth here What about when someone continually grinds on you? They are your enemy. Put their name in verse 44 and keep it there. If you can do that, you'll start to feel just for a moment how radical what Jesus is calling for here. And again, the beginning of verse 45 tells us why it's so important. It tells us it is possible. In fact, it's so possible to love your enemies that Jesus would attach to it what he says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is just like the beatitude found in verse 9 of the chapter. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking involves, yeah, evangelism, trying to make peace in someone's life with the gospel. It involves trying to reconcile disagreements, bring harmony where there is strife and hatred. If you go back and you look at the the sermons of somebody like Martin Luther King or even Martin Lloyd-Jones across the Atlantic, they were good about saying things like break the chain of hate. They were good about describing ways that when someone hates you and does something hateful to you, everything in you wants to just hate them back. Why is that? Because we're made in God's image. We do want to oppose that which seems to be evil and wrong. But all throughout the scriptures, Jesus knows, and I hope you know, all throughout the scriptures, God's constantly telling Israel, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Even David in the Psalms, when David is talking in Psalm 139, and he says, I hate my enemies with with full hatred. You know what comes right after that? It's a verse we, lo- we often like to quote in Christian circles. It says, search me, O God, 
try me, know my heart, test my ways. Even David in the Psalms, when he felt this vicious hatred towards enemies, enemies of God, and he felt hatred towards them, that was almost too much bubbling over in his, his heart couldn't contain that kind of emotion because God knows we're not meant to hold on to hate in our heart for anyone. God knows how to punish. God knows how to bring retributive justice. We don't. And it's, it's intoxicating, isn't it, to hold on to hate for another person in your heart. I can't believe she did that to me. I can't believe he said that to me. I can't believe he would stop me and get in my way like that. I can't believe that person would tell me to do that. I can't believe they would do that to me. And we start to grind our teeth and hate. Jesus is saying here, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Why does he say pray? Well, in our exposition of this passage, it would, it would fall short if we don't say something about the word pray. Praying for your enemies is something you can do when they're not around you. Isn't it easy to, to not try to think of your enemies at all when they're not around you because of the anxiety and stress they cause when they come to your mind? Whether that's through the form of a panic attack or whether that's stress and anger or whether that's just mere avoidance or whether that's making fun and joking about them and gossiping about them. Jesus knows that if we love and pray for our enemies, it will have a great effect on our hearts. And Jesus knows it's possible because if we love our enemies, we actually show family resemblance. We show that we are adopted. He's not talking about some idealistic, hypothetical thing that's only for some Christians to think about. If someone calls themselves a Christian, we understand that they're calling themselves adopted into God's family. So Jesus is taking this radical call to love enemies and he's linking it with the most common thought any Christian would have, I'm a child of God. And he links them together so that we can't think this is for the, the super extra holy Christians. This is for all believers. We are not to hate anyone. We're not to inflame hate in our heart. We're not to justify and muse on reasons of why we might want to hate someone. We're not even meant to think about all the reasons why they would be worthy of any kind of hatred. We want to have the heart of God. And God's heart, like Ezekiel 33, 11 says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The punishment and wrath that God will pour out on his enemies comes at a time. But before that time comes, God has shown them incredible love. And it's only when, and God knows this, we don't, only when they come to that point where they have so spurned his love, they've so rejected his love for them, even while they're enemies, they've come, become so recalcitrant, so hardened, so impenitent, there's this point at which God's like, okay, punishment now comes on you. All the while, he shows great patience and great love for his enemies. And that's what we want to see here. We want to look at the example of how God loves his enemies. If you ask the question, how do I know God loves his enemies? The answer is in the second half of verse 45. And here's what's amazing. This second half of verse 45 
actually teaches us how we can love our enemies. So if you've ever struggled with loving your enemies, you want to look at verse 45. If you feel like you don't have any enemies right now, life's going okay, you, you better get these principles and lodge them in your heart now because there will be enemies who come into your life sooner or later. So let's look at it. Here's how to do it. It's so important because it's family resemblance. If we love our enemies, we're like God. But here's how we do it, verse 45. Here's how God does it. It says he makes his son, and notice that's S-U-N. We're not talking about Jesus Christ, his son. He makes his son, sunlight, sunshine, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If God wanted to, he could keep darkness on his enemies and only sunlight on his people. Proof of that, Exodus. Exodus 10, 23, when darkness falls all over Egypt during the 10 plagues. But you remember what happened with his people? They had light where they lived. We might think that the wicked don't deserve sunlight gently basking on their skin. They don't deserve to see a beautiful sunset. As a side note, this verse is a verse commonly referred to by theologians for the common grace of God. In fact, if you remember last year when we talked about God's attributes over the summer, do you remember when we talked about grace? There's that common grace, like sunlight, rain, just, unjust. There's saving grace, sanctifying grace. There's a type of grace God gives to even his enemies that is loving, and it's right here in verse 45. The sunlight, he gives it to even those who hate him. Imagine for a moment you are God, and you got to decide who gets to have sunlight in their life and who gets to have rain in their life. And this is not a trivial small thing. You know what sunlight does, right? Besides sunburn, besides all the bad effects of the sun you might think about, the sun brings vitamin D. It brings warmth. It's a delight to the eyes. It, it helps us see. And rain, well, that gives us things to drink. Anything you're going to try to drink, rain was involved in making that drink. There's water in there somehow. Or even if it's made of fruit, the fruit of the earth grows because of the rain. There's flourishing. Rain would be used to cleanse, to wash. God is giving sun, shine, and rain. And here are the principles. I'll give it to you. There's four of them. If you can remember these principles, it'll help you love your enemies. And all it takes is just remembering the sun and the rain. In God's wisdom, he's told us only one example of how he loves his enemies because he loves them in many ways because he knows that our small-mindedness, we can only handle just a few things at times. Here they are. Here's four principles all wrapped up inside of this idea of God giving sun and rain. Are you ready? These are meant to help you love your enemies. Number one, love and pray for your enemies consistently. Love and pray for your enemies consistently. Take no days off. How do we get that principle from what God showed us in the verse? Well, how often does the sun decide to not rise for the next day? The sun rises up every day. It's consistent. God doesn't wait for a, a moment of wickedness and say, all right, tomorrow I'm not going to let any sunshine be involved in that person's life. 
Every day, whether they're good or evil, the sun rises. The sun sets, it rises again. And then it sets, and it rises again. And that's God's gift. We can't be inconsistent and take days off from loving our enemies. The second principle, love and pray for your enemies in good will, expecting real benefit for them. Love and pray for your enemies in good will, expecting real benefit for them. The sun and rain don't predetermine before a raindrop falls or sunlight comes in. They don't predetermine. They're not living beings, by the way. They're elements. But they don't predetermine, oh, this person's wicked. I'm going to hold back some of the vitamin D that I've got. I know I'm a ray of light, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit their skin, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give any vitamin D. The raindrops, they don't say, you know what, I'm going to hold back. That's a wicked person. I'm not going to give them H2 and O. I'm just going to give them H2. I'm going to hold the O back. That makes no sense scientifically. No sense. The H2O comes to the person, and it stays complete, and it gives them everything the H2O brings. Processes for life, for cleansing. The sun and rain don't predetermine who is worthy of their benefit. And remember, there is great benefit that comes from sunlight and rain. It's not that God shines sunlight on Christians and just gives artificial light that looks like sunlight to the enemies. No. If you or your enemy have a solar-powered calculator and you're a high school student or a college student, you or your enemy, you both walk outside, they still work. It's not like God's putting fake light out there and your enemy's just getting duped. It's real light for both of you. There's real benefit to both of you. We want to love and pray for our enemies expecting real benefit to them. God expects there to be real blessing in the sunlight and rain he gives on the unjust. He will hold them accountable for how they haven't thanked him for it. He will hold them accountable for how they've used the rain and sunlight to do even more wicked things. But he still gives them real elements to do real things with because he is so loving. The third principle just from thinking about the sun and the rain. Love and pray for your enemies without expecting their acknowledgement or thanks. Love and pray for your enemies without expecting their acknowledgement or thanks. Rays of sunlight and drops of rain, they don't keep a record and an accumulation of, of thankfulness and decide, all right, we've been shining our light on this dude for a whole week and he hasn't thanked us once. God, he hasn't praised you once. Do you still want us to go from from the sun and go all the way, pierce the atmosphere of the earth, come to this guy and, and let him see this sunlight? God says, sunlight, keep going. Imagine you have the position God has. You could hold back the sun from someone who's evil. As we know from the book of Job in, in chapter 37, he sends his rain for love, correction, discipline, his land. The rain is always sent by God. It's never an accident. If we're not careful, we will only love our enemies and pray for them for so long until they even acknowledge that we've been treating them well or they thank us, but God keeps sending these good elements on the good and evil, the just and the unjust, even when they're not thanking him for it. 
So if you ever think to yourself, it's so hard to love this enemy, fill in the blank who they are. I've been trying to love them for two months now. Imagine God who's been giving that enemy life, breath, and health for years. God's patience and love for his enemies is breathtaking. If you begin to hope for immediate validation back from your enemies, that they would lessen their hatred or opposition of you because you're doing good things for them, you're forgetting the analogy of the rain and the sunlight. The rain and the sun keeps coming day after day, season after season, in the most wicked person's life. And fourth principle, love and pray for your enemies knowing it will always feel personal. It's always going to feel personal. You say, all right, the preacher just made something up. That has nothing to do with sunlight and rain. Because the sunlight and rain are, are just elements. They're not sentient beings with a conscience. But here's how we get that principle from the verse. You've got to put your eyes on it. Put your eyes back down on verse 45, the second half. Did you see the little word before the word sun? It says, he makes, does it say the sun? It says, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. And instead of saying, and rain on the just and the unjust, he uses the word sins. God is showing us that the sunlight is his. It belongs to him, and he gives it. The rain, the storehouses of rain, it's his. It belongs to him, but he sends it. The wicked person doesn't think about how personally God is loving them through common grace when sunlight and rain are in their life. But Christian, you and I, we understand, don't we? As creator, as sovereign sustainer, the sun is his. It's his sun. It's not just the sun detached from the creator. This principle helps us try to love our enemies because when we try to love them and pray for them, it's going to feel so personal. We wish we could just create some kind of little care package for our enemy that has an artificial intelligence system and just kind of runs on its own. We don't ever need to touch it again. We don't ever need to talk to our enemy again or be around them. And sure, there's some good things that will happen to them. God, I, I fulfilled the verse, didn't I? It's going to be personal every time. It's going to cause your heart to be checked and examined every time you try to love them. But that's what God's calling us to do. This is the very reason we read from Jonah earlier in the service. You remember when Andy read from the book of Jonah? What did Jonah struggle to do? Love his enemies. He didn't struggle to know God's character, right? He even says in chapter four, God, I know you're a gracious and merciful God. His struggle was loving his enemies. You could even push it further and say his, his struggle was an ethnocentricity of his Jewish identity. He hated anybody who wasn't like him. But Jonah struggled. In fact, those four principles we just looked at, loving our enemies consistently, loving with goodwill, expecting real benefit, loving them without acknowledgement or thanks from them, loving them, knowing it's going to feel personal. Jonah 
was majorly struggling at all those points. Because the preaching he did in Nineveh actually caused them to repent, turn to God, and experience salvation. It was real benefit. But for Jonah, he's like, kill me. I just want to die. Why? Because he had such fits and starts of trying to love his enemies. It didn't compute in his brain, why would I ever try to love my enemy? Which is actually a good question. It's where we want to land today. We want to land and close our time with this idea of why love our enemy. And this brings us to point three, moral perfection. Moral perfection. We'll close with this idea. There's a few points to it, though. Did you know moral perfection is called upon and called for even before we get to verse 48? Did you see the four questions that Jesus lays out in verse 46 and following? The four questions there pierce any excuse we would have to not love our enemies. They're stinging rebukes to the Christian conscience. If you need something to wake you up and you're a little squeamish, imagine somebody putting four scorpions on your pillow before you lay in bed. Would you lay there? I don't think so. Not until those are dealt with. If you need something a little bit more domestic, would you ever try to go run, walk, do something if somebody put four pebbles in your shoe, four rocks in your shoe? No. You've got to deal with those. Jesus lays out four things here we've got to deal with if we're going to love our enemies. It's going to require moral perfection. To paraphrase and summarize, Jesus says, if you love those who are just like you, you are no different than the tax collector or the Gentile. And he's speaking to these first century Jews. You are no different than them. If you will not leverage your heart love for your enemies, you are just like them. So you can't make an excuse that you want, you want to take a pass on this assignment from the Lord. This moral assignment from God is that our love should go further than those we like to those that, that are our worst foes. And it's hard to do this because loving our enemies doesn't guarantee they will change. It doesn't guarantee they'll change. It doesn't guarantee that you will suddenly feel amazing because you love them. It, it might be really hard for you when you love them. But down the road later, reward comes. Jesus said in one of those questions there, what reward do you have? That question teaches us you have great reward when you love your enemies because the Lord knows you are not loving them for the good smile they give back to you and the benefit they give back to you. You're not loving them for, for how good it, it makes you feel in the moment. You're loving them because it's supernatural. It's a gospel love that helps you love them. And there's reward in that. There's reward in that because that is a picture of the gospel. God sends more than sunlight. He sends his actual son to teach moral perfection here. Jesus is not just trying to teach all of his hearers, I want you all to love your enemies. If you do that, you've achieved perfection. What he's actually saying here is, if you love your enemies, you are on the path to moral perfection. You're not, you're not there yet. We know that because in verse 48, it says, you therefore. The therefore links us back to this literary structure that you would miss if you were only looking at the verses we saw today. 
But if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, what is the phrase that has happened over and over and over again? It's Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He clears up bad views of the law. He explains a good view of the law with application. This word, therefore, in verse 48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is actually lassoing together everything from verse 21 to verse 48. All these moral categories of anger and lust and keeping your word and honoring marriage and not retaliating, all these things, he's saying, therefore, you're to live these out. Why? He's saying, you ought to exist with moral perfection because that's how your father is existing now. Jesus knows that the gospel brings us moral perfection, credited to our account, but he also knows we're not experiencing it yet. Jesus knows that enemy love, natural love, seem incompatible. How can we go from a person who just naturally loves to have a supernatural love for enemies? Jesus knows that the gospel is what's going to transform his hearers. The scriptures tell us that anyone who would make themselves a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy with God. The scriptures tell us that all of us have done what we read about earlier in verse 43. There's some people we hate, there's some people we love. And because of that, because we've not imaged God's perfect morality, he will judge us because he is morally perfect. You can't say, God, I'm going to represent you And God says, okay, here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to love your enemies. And you say, I don't want to do that one. For you to misrepresent God is blasphemy. This is why all people are condemned unless they have the perfect moral righteousness of Christ placed on them. That happens when any human being man or woman, looks to Jesus Christ and the way he died on the cross, the way he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, the way he loved his enemies. He died on the cross and absorbed God's wrath for you and I. We know that it's for us when we have turned from our sin and trusted in him. That doesn't mean we don't ever sin again. It means we've turned from our sin and we're no longer against God, but we side with God against our sin, against the enemy of Sin, Satan, death. We side with God that those are our enemies now. And we strive to handle those enemies in the way God calls us to. And God calls here for moral perfection. Jesus is filling up the intent of the law here and giving us a vision for moral perfection. It's kind of like what Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he said, if you want to be perfect, it's the same word here, perfect. You want to be perfect? Go and sell all that you have. Jesus knows the areas of our heart that are not yet perfect, whole, complete, mature, full-grown, sanctified. And he's giving us a pursuit and a destiny. The person who has the destiny of moral perfection is walking the path of it right now. So beware. If, If pursuing moral perfection a deeper and deeper love is not what you're pursuing, beware that your destiny is different than God's. Because we read in verse 48, you must be perfect, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
We remember we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Another human being is never your enemy in the truest sense. They are actually to be a recipient of your love. Love for enemies is one way God moves in a very mysterious way. And we're going to close with that hymn today. Why would God call us to love our enemies? Because it's how we're going to display the gospel. It's how we're going to get to have fellowship with Christ and know just a little taste of what it was like for him to love his enemies and and go to the cross and die on their behalf. We began this time this morning asking the question, what does someone have to do to become your enemy? And we might close with asking the question, what does someone have to do to be a recipient of your love? doesn't matter if they're an enemy or not. Let's strive to look like Christ. Will you trust his holy calling here? It's so difficult. With Christ's help, let's see who you love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, difficult call to love. Lord, you know there are so many nuances and specifics of how you want us to love our enemies that are very uncomfortable for us to even think about doing. We need your grace. We need supernatural love in our hearts. Father, help us as a church family to share in the gospel in such a way that we encourage one another to love our enemies. Father, give us enough boldness to ask one another who our enemies are and identify them so that we might love them. We thank you, Lord, for turning us from enemies to friends by the gospel. Help us have that same love. We want to be perfect as you are, Lord. In the perfect name of your son, we pray. Amen.